I'm Sylvia Burgos Tofnes, and this is Deep Roots Radio. Every week, my guests help us connect the dots between what we eat and how it's grown because every single food dollar we spend either protects or degrades the environment, produces foods with high nutrition or empty calories, and either helps pay a fair wage or keeps farm workers among the working poor. We get to make that choice every time we push a cart through the grocery store, visit the farmer's market, and eat at a restaurant. I hope you enjoy this interview. I am, you know, I've been canning for a while, but I am no big expert. Okay. We do have on the line, however, a master preserver. I didn't know we had such a title. Yes, this is a man who is, who's got his training and has been canning and also has a love of canning history. Perry Rice, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Well, ple- my pleasure. Oh, it was so terrific to chat with you yesterday as we prepared for today's show. So, Perry, let's start off with, a, with an idea. How long have you been canning? It was about eight years ago that I got into canning proper. And do you come from a canning background? I mean, is this something that, no. that you grew up with? <laughs> No, uh, my family didn't can. Uh, my grandmother made a couple of jellies each year because she had grapes. But other, other than that, I, I really was not exposed to canning growing up. Now, what got you interested? You know, I'm not quite sure. Uh, one thing is is that I started to collect, uh, became interested in fruit jars, um, especially old antique fruit jars. Uh, and... Um, I decided to try my hand at making jelly, and then from jelly it went to, uh, you know, tomatoes and corn and pie fillings and tomato juices and chicken breasts and chicken stock and split pea soup, and it just grew. Grew from there. Now, has, how long has canning been around as, some, as, a, as a means that the homemaker could use in order to well, preserve foods? Um, actually, canning, as as we understand it today, we're not talking about drying, we're not talking about preserving where you're using sugar as the means to preserve, uh, or fermentation for right. making pickles. Uh, canning itself uh, has been around about 200 years. It was actually part of the French Revolution, or at the time of the French Revolution, uh, France was trying to increase its industrial capability, and they were also trying to find a better means to feed their armies. Mm-hmm. And the French government put out a basically a prize of 12,000 francs for someone who could come up with a better means of preserving foods because mm. their, their military uh, aspirations uh, usually were carried out in the summer. They had a problem carrying food in the winter months and whatever, so basically everybody went home. And then they started the battles up later on. Mm. Uh, there was a gentleman, a confectioner, out of, right out of Paris by the name of Nicolas uh, Appert, who started to experiment with preservation of foods. And he really came up with the, the canning um, process. Mm-hmm. Uh, it took him from 1795 to about um, 1808 uh, to develop the method uh, he was awarded the prize in, in 1810 by the French government, and part of the stipulation for that was that he had to publish a book. So he actually published his process, and and it spread. Uh, he had most of what we would recognize down. He would uh, 
partially cooked food, mm-hmm. put it into jars, seal the jars up, um, put them into a boiling water bath huh. for varying periods of time depending on what was being canned. Um, he didn't know why it worked. In fact, it wasn't going to be until the 1860s that they figured out that bacteria and yeast and molds were the cause of, of uh, degradation of, of products. But it worked. Hmm. Now, can I ask you then, uh, mm-hmm. Perry, now he actually worked with jars and with uh, you know, some form of sealing of them. But as this technology progressed, did it go into cans then, actual cans? Yes. Um, what he started with actually were champagne bottles because he was sealing his bottles before he was putting them into the water bath. And explosions and breakage were really common. He then had custom jars made for him that were very, very heavy-walled um, so he could expand that neck opening. But um, he'd literally use mallets to drive corks in, and then they'd wire the, the cork down. When he published his book in 1810, in fact, the following year in, in England, uh, a gentleman by the name of Peter Durand um, put out a patent on, on preserving foods in tin, in, in ah. cans. Um, uh, Nicholas had worked with glass primarily because there wasn't a, a great uh, metal industry in France at the time. When Peter Durand uh, was patented on the canning um, portion of it, uh, I guess one of the things you have to understand is that for the first years, most of the canned goods were for military mm-hmm. and expedition purposes. So home canning per se probably didn't develop until the, say, the 1830s. Ah. And, you know, um, people didn't have these heavy walled jars that they could use at home. And the jars that were available wouldn't stand up to the uh, pressures that he was using. And that's why, for the most part, uh, it was the open kettle method that was used, where people would cook the food, get it hot, They'd put it into a hot jar, not because they needed, they knew that they needed to sterilize, but if you put hot product into a cold jar, it would break. Right. Uh, and they would, um, you know, cook the food, put it in the hot jar. Um, early on, they would put a put a cork in the product, uh, in the jar. Um, oftentimes, it had a hog's bladder lining. Um, hog's bladder is like wiener casing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's. It's a very thin membrane. It dries taut, uh, mm-hmm. and it, perform, it forms a, an airtight seal. They would use that. They would sometimes loot, uh, wire the, the cork shut. They would dip it in wax ah. to help uh, make the seal uh, impermeable. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that, uh, the open kettle method was used until really... Um, the start of the 20th century, even for some fruits and vegetables. And it's still carried on by some people, although it's not recommended at all uh, by the USDA, and uh, for certain jams and things that they're, they're doing. You know, this is so very interesting, at least to me, that, that the history of it. People were really, really desperate to try to preserve their foods, weren't they? I mean, they were just oh. using so many different kinds of approaches oh, in that effort. 
Oh, and, and, and absolutely. And, and again, the, in the 19th century, most of what was canned was fruits. I mean, your strawberry season. I mean, if, if you lived in Alaska, you never had strawberries unless you could get them canned from someplace. You know? mm-hmm. Or even in Minnesota, you had a short season, and then for the winter, et cetera, there wasn't any. You had to wait until that following year. And, yes, people were desperate to find ways of uh, improving their diets in the wintertime. And, and understand, too, at the time, they were canning only to sustain it until the following spring, until the next harvest came in. Right, right. So you didn't have people putting things up intentionally to be stored for several years. Got it. So let me ask you guys, we follow the, the, the flow of history here in the notion of canning. You know, it, it already, you know, even in this brief um, chat that we've had thus far, we've already seen big changes from a pair, you know, in, in the late uh, 18th century to 1900. Uh, where you've got a pair who, who had the access to those champagne bottles because I think his father was a champagne maker. I, I believe you're right. And so he had, he had uh, access to these kinds of bottles and, and a knowledge of, well, you wire it down because, of course, champagne needs to be kept uh, closed under a great deal of pressure. So if you had people that were kind of doing jams and jelly in this open kettle method, as you call it, and then using either a cork or a membrane to keep it closed. When did the use of paraffin wax come into well, use? Par- okay, um, I can tell you when it wasn't used. Um, paraffin wax was a byproduct of the petroleum industry. Ah. And so paraffin wax as a commercially available substance didn't happen until the latter part of the 1860s. Uh-huh. Um, uh, and when it actually caught on for jellies, I, I honestly have never looked into mm-hmm. it. Um, it's no longer recommended by the USDA um, that you use paraffin wax to cover jams and jellies because um, it, it used to be they would say, well, if you get any little mold growth around the edges because the paraffin can separate away from right. the glass, well, just you know, just scrape off the mold and 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 you can eat and consume it. Now we understand that there are, I want to call them tendrils or filaments of the mold that, that extend deeply into jams and jellies. Right. So it's, it's no longer recommended that you can just scrape it out and, and use it. And that's why they no longer recommend the use of paraffin waxes, and they recommend that all jams and jellies get processed to not, not to protect against the bacteria and yeast because the sugar content is going to do that, but to make sure that all the molds have been killed off and that it's hermetically sealed so that no more molds can get into it. Wow. You know, before we get into some more specifics on how to can safely, I'd like to do just a little bit more of this history. Sure. Uh, because of your own special interest in canning jars. So we, we've gotten to that point where we talked initially about the, the champagne bottles and thick walled bottles moving to tins and how all of this was really uh, driven by a lot of military activity as well as industry. And then we get to the home canning jar. When did that become available? And when did, the, when did a jar with, with a twist top happen? When you say twist top, are you talking about the wire bale? No, I'm talking about the band. 
Oh, the, okay, the band. band. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. So, so let's go back. Um, commercially available fruit jars were actually developed at, in the late 1840s, early 1850s, if you were rich enough to get them. You have to understand that all jars at that time were hand-blown, sometimes uh-huh. a freehand, where they actually didn't even use a mold, and it was just up to the, the skill of the person blowing it. But oh, later my. on, it, you would blow the blow the jar into a mold, mm-hmm. and then they would take it out of the mold, break off the top. Um, there'd be a, like a big glass bubble on the top. They'd have to break that off. Um, and then they would add more glass to finish the top, the closure of it, or... Um, Later on, and as we'll talk about with mason jars, they would uh, flip the jar over and put it on a grinding wheel and literally grind the, the glass flakes off of it. Wow. But um, the corkers, the, those sealed by corks, uh, became available probably, again, the later part of the 1840s, early 1850s. Um, in 1855, there was a big change where a gentleman by the name of um, Henry Arthur, um uh, invented a a wax sealer. He put a groove along the top of of the fruit jar, and he created a, a tin lid that would fit into that groove. They would fill the product with the jar with water, with product, and then he would pour liquid wax into that groove, and that would sort of cement the lid in. Mm. So again, this was something that. You wouldn't work if you were putting something in a boiling water bath canner, right. but it would work if you had cooked it by um, open kettle. Now, in 1858, um, a gentleman by the name of John Mason created, uh, a, a, invented a, a means of closure. It wasn't just that they had a screw-on lid, but he created threads that began and end before the top surface of the jar, and that made effective sealing of the jar possible. Now, the so when you when you talk about a mason jar, you're really referring to a, a man who who patented this in 1858, and literally, you know, 150 years later, we're still using the basic design for that. The closure itself has changed mm-hmm. um, because originally that was a zinc cap, and for the first 10 years. It was an unlined zinc cap, so you had almost direct content metal contact. So a lot of the foods got a metallic flavor. Then uh-huh. a gentleman by the name of Boyd created a glass lining, and that reduced the amount of metal um, flavor that would be imparted to food. And these jars sh- sealed not on the top of the jar, but on the shoulder of the fruit jar. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in the 1880s, a gentleman by the name of Henry Putnam invented what was now called the, the lightning jar. This is the old-fashioned um, fruit jar with a glass lid, a rubber gasket, and a glass jar with a, a bale, uh, a, a wire bale. And those were very, very popular in the 1890s up until uh, the early 1960s. Wow. And uh, the the mason jar itself, uh, again, those those jars were until about 1900 were all hand blown, and again they would blow that 
this glass blub bubble off the top of it and then flip the jar upside down and grind it off. So if you look at it, if you look at a real old mason jar, you'll see that the top surface is actually ground down. Hmm. Um, and it wasn't until after the turn of the century when they started using machinery that the top of the jar got smooth enough where they could actually move to a, a top seal. Um, and in fact, this happens to be the 100th anniversary of the modern two-part oh. canning jar closure. It was invented by a gentleman by the name of Alexander Kerr. You mentioned right. Kerr earlier on. They started out with what they called an economy jar, which was a large, wide-mouthed jar that had a separate metal lid with a little rubber um, compound on it. Well, then he went to this two-part lid that is still used today. When did these jars become inexpensive enough to become widely used? Okay, really about 19, between 1900 and 1915, because okay. that's when we were, they were converting from hand-blown jars to machine-made jars, which literally, you know, they could create tens and hundreds of times the number of jars in a day uh, by machine that they could buy. Uh, by hand blowing, and it was much more. Uh, it was a, a craft, an art to blow glass. Mm -hmm. So when they were able to use machines, they were also able to use um, lower skilled workers. So ah. that also improved the um, the cost on these. Wow! Now, you, you've talked. We've talked about the the kind of evolution or development of better uh, equipment to get this done. Was this um, an approach? canning, home canning, was this something that was embraced um, eagerly in America as well as in other parts of the world? Um, well, yes. I mean, um, there's a lot of canning that goes on in, in Europe and the United States and in Canada. Um, any place where you need to, you know, store um, product or you want to store product for an extended period of time or for off-seasons. We've talked about the changes in the equipment. Um, what about changes in actual technique, you know, how to can? Has that changed much? I know we talked about a little bit about, you know, the kettle canning, but how has that changed? Well, um, in, the, in the 1980s, they created a center for excellence at Penn State University, and they went back and they looked at all the USDA-recommended canning practices, and they basically took a look at um, when they were developed, and a lot of these uh, were developed in the 1940s. Mm. And they thought it was time to really take a good look to see if they are current, because there have been changes, uh, a lot of them. And, you know, there had been certainly changes in agricultural practices where products were grown, certainly the varieties that were being grown, because people, commercial canners, were developing fruits and vegetables that harvest or, you know, grow faster, harvest earlier. Mm -hmm. um, and when they did the research and they decided to do um, that they would not publish any recipes unless it actually had been tested in the lab, they found uh, a variety of things. One is, is that a, a big change was for tomato products. Tomato products, although considered generally acid foods, uh, which means that they have an inherent pH of 4.6 
or less. And 4.6 is the is the number in canning, and it's the pH at which um, botulism will survive. Um, mm. So if you have a product that has a pH below 4.6, you're able to process that through a boiling water bath canner. If you've got a product that has a pH above 4.6, that's something that's got to be pressure canned because the spores of, of the botulism bacteria can survive long periods of time in a boiling water bath and you really need to process it at a temperature of like 240 to 250 degrees Fahrenheit, and that can only be done in a, in a properly equipped pressure canner. But they went back and they took a look, and they, you know, because there, so much change had occurred in tomatoes, they instilled that all tomato products need to be acidified. You need, either needed to add lemon juice or you needed to add citric acid to every jar. So if you were to compare tomatoes that were canned, say, 50 years ago in that process and the ones today. The ones today are more tart, but they're also safer because, again, they have to reflect the commercial availability of the tomatoes. And there's a big difference even if you have the same variety of tomatoes. If you grow it in one state, you may have a different inherent pH than if you grow hmm. it in another state. They also did things like they eliminated anything that thickened products. So they took away flour. So suddenly chicken a la king recipe, which was everybody's favorite, was gone because the thickening the product affected the way that heat was able to be conveyed through the product. And what you really needed to do is in the middle of that jar, you have to get the jar hot enough to be able to kill um, any botulism spores that are in there as well as, as, as other bacteria and yeasts and, and molds. Um, they discovered that Although a lot of people did pumpkin puree for pumpkin pies, they couldn't come up with a recipe that would assure that the product was always safe. So pumpkin puree was out of the picture, and now it's only recommended that it be cubed. They published all their results in 1994. So the recommendation today is, is that you should always use a tested recipe, either issued by the USDA, um, in this case the Wisconsin Department of uh, Extension Service, mm-hmm. um, or uh, there's another organization, the National Center for Food Preservation. They are out of the University of Georgia, and in fact they write the guidelines for the USDA for home canning. Also ball bl- books, the, the traditional ball blue book, and they also have a ball complete canning book. A ball is an approved source of recipes. So even though Grandma was able to make things with her recipe and she never died from it, does not mean that you should grab that and use it today. If your recipe isn't from an approved source, it is no longer recommended. You know, that's so interesting because one of the things that really struck home uh, as I've been kind of looking at um, canning books, and I've got loads of them, but I only use the recipes, to be honest, in that ball book of complete book of home preserving, um, is that tomatoes have become sweeter over time. I mean, that's been a huge effort amongst those people who develop strains. And they that, are. And that sweeter tomato is not going to give you the acid you need. No, and that's why they need to add the acid. And if you actually look at commercially canned tomato products now, you will see citric acid on the ingredient listing. The only reason they're adding it is because they have to. 
They mm-hmm. have to reduce the pH in order to make sure that they've got a shelf-stable, safe product for consumers. Wow. Well, that's that's something that's a big, big tip. You know, we've only got, oh my goodness, only three minutes left, but I had wanted to get at least a tip from you when it comes to pressure canning. I also do pressure canning, and this is where you take a huge pressure cooker. It's meant specifically for the canning of foods. Now, you had a caution that we had talked about earlier. What is that? Well, the caution is is that there are basically two types of pressure canners, one that uses a weighted gauge pressure regulator and, and the other was that use a uh, an actual pressure gauge that you're watching and monitoring the pressure on it um and if now, you is, are using is that, a, t- is that a dial is that what it's called yeah a dial okay, okay. so if you're using a dial canner um you want to make sure that 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 canning gauge that pressure gauge is is checked for calibration once a year oftentimes the county extension office will do that Mm-hmm. If you have bought your canner from Presto Industries, mm-hmm. also known as National, um, if you send it the the gauge back into them, they will check that for you. The other thing is is that you need to be aware of the um, altitude. Uh, in Wisconsin, the altitude varies from 500 to 2,000 feet, and if you are pressure canning. The, the rule is to use for 11 pounds of pressure on a dial canner for any, throughout the state, anywhere from uh, up to 2,000 feet, that'll work. However, if you're using a weighted gauge, it has uh, limited uh, adjustments. You go 10 pounds, the next is 15 pounds. Mm-hmm. So the recommendation is if you are at 1,000 feet or less, you use 1,000 pounds or, or 10 pounds. If you are above 1,000 feet, it's 15 all right. Well, Perry, we've come to the end of our time here. I'm wondering if people want to know more, is there a website that they can go to? Oh, there are several web- websites that, that you look at. Um, Wisconsin has a wonderful one um, that is put out by Barb Ingham, um, and that is foodsafety.wisc.edu. On there you will find uh, electronic copy copies of pamphlets that U of W have developed for canning a variety of products. There's also a link to give you uh, an electronic version of the USDA's complete book of canning. Well, thank you. Thank you again so much. I think that this is a topic we could certainly uh, chat about for hours on end, but really glad that you've made time for us this morning. Thanks an awful lot, Perry. I hope you have a good weekend. Thank you. Visit my website, bronxtobarn.com to download this and past interviews, to learn about my farm, and to reserve 100% grass-fed beef. We deliver to Minneapolis and St. Paul, Minnesota. Thanks.